This event was recorded live at the 2016 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Hello everyone, welcome to the Edinburgh International Book Festival. My name's uh, James Runcy and it's my privilege to interview this, uh, start this event with Nina Stibber. We're a bit giggly because we just, I've just reported on the fact that, uh, well we did an event last year and I, I just went to the loo nervous pee and a man was texting while on the, while on the loo at the same time. I thought, how could you, multitasking, but surely not that. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, Nina is the author of the best-selling and recently televised Love, Nina, and also Man at the Helm, her first novel, which is principally about how three children decide to try and find their mother, a new man, after their father has walked out with another man. It's a description of a chaotic household, which we discussed in an equally chaotic session last year, <laughs> uh, including one of the funniest readings I've ever heard about a pony being trapped in an upstairs bedroom. Uh, now Nina has written a kind of sequel, well, a sequel, not a kind of sequel, a sequel, Paradise Lodge. Uh, the same narrator, Lizzie Vogel, is now 15, still at school, but working in the nursing home, Paradise Lodge, a job she takes because, at the age of 15, it seemed too exhausting to become a full-time girlfriend or a punk. <laughs> We're going to talk for a bit, and I've, I've picked out three passages to give you a flavour of the book, which I'm going to ask Nina to read, and then we'll discuss them, and then it'll be your turn to ask questions, uh, unless it all goes very uh, wrong and very unpredictable. So, because uh, that's what it can be like with Nina. So please welcome <laughs> Nina Stiver. So, Nina, first of all, um, the central character of the book is uh, Lizzie Vogel. Yeah. Uh, tedious but straightforward question. How much is this narrator you? She's very me. I'm very her. And um, I, I didn't set out to admit that uh, with Man at the Helm or this. I thought um, I'd say there's a little bit. But then very early on, somehow I just said, yeah, it's me. Um, which had implications for everybody else. <laughs> well, yes, it's first-person narration, <laughs> yeah. and uh, obviously, you know, you have, there are family members, and yeah. there's a stepfather, and so presumably your mother had yes. some things to say about it. Yes, she, she was fine about it, but I think she was a little surprised at just how readily I'd admitted it was our family story. Right. Um, uh, so it's, it's, it's the, we're in the 70s, um, yeah. and... Um, did you have to do extra research, or does it all, is it all memory, memory, and it's, then with it, a bit of made-up stuff? It's exactly that. It's, it's my memories. I'd always wanted to write about my time working at this nursing home, which was in real life called uh, The Grange, because it had been so funny and wonderful and, and, and you know, interesting. Um, but I'd never had the courage to, really. But then I, when I set to write it... I realised I didn't have to change it very much at all, um, but I um, I just tweaked a few things and uh, the the research I didn't do a lot of research. What happens is it's great you send the book to the publisher and then the copy editor contacts you with all the things you've got wrong, and so it's actually much easier. <laughs> <laughs> so for in, I had this wonderful man called Keith. Um, at Penguin with all, all three books um, and he'll say something like if Lizzie had taken a five pound note to the fair in 1973 that would have been 280 pounds <laughs> that kind of thing so I've learned to not waste too much time 
<laughs> so just they'll do it for you. They'll do it for you. Yeah, very good. Well, uh, before we get on to the nursing home, yeah. I want to, and also for people on that side of the room, um, I'm going to ask you to read uh, the first yeah. passage, which is the, the continue before we get on to the home, it's the passage about uh, the mother, because um, uh, in, the, in this uh, opening passage, which is about 30 pages in, it's... Um, uh, the, the man at the helm in the, in the previous novel has arrived, and this is Mr. Holt from the Snowdrop Laundry. Uh, and early on in the novel, um, Lizzie Vogel's mother conspires to get pregnant by Mr. Holt from the laundry. Do you want to go to the lectern <laughs> yeah, and, and introduce the lectern. this little passage? Because yeah. um, this is... Um, so, so, yes, uh, the mother is, has successfully got herself pregnant... Um, but it's, he, she's agreed that she and Mr Holt won't have any more children because they can't afford it and they're very busy. But she sneakily gets pregnant. And uh, uh, during the, the pregnancy, first of all, she doesn't tell Mr Holt for ages because she thinks she, she can't bear to because he'll be so cross. Uh, but then finally he notices she's hugely pregnant. <laughs> and... Um, and, and in fact, uh, my si uh, Lizzie's siblings and Lizzie are, are rather disappointed as well because it's all rather embarrassing and she's ancient. Um, and it's all really gloomy and bad. What should have been good is actually in reality gloomy and awful. So here we are on the morning that the, uh, the mother has gone off to the Leicester Royal Infirmary to give birth. My sister and I got up for school and found a note. Gone to Royal to have baby. And on the note, she'd drawn a baby and a horse's head. She, she always drew a horse's head because it was the only thing she could draw and it showed she was happy. In spite of the horse's head, I was upset that she'd gone off on her own. But my sister said, we'd only have been in the way and would you really want to see the baby come out? Which were both good points. We went to school on the bus as usual and none of us mentioned it. Then in my last lesson, for some reason, I told a girl called Julia Dwyer that my mother might have had a baby. And she said, yuck, how old is she? And I shaved off two years to make it seem less revolting. And I regretted the whole thing, the telling and the pregnancy. Back at home, my sister, my brother Jack and I sat watching telly and had forgotten all about it when the phone rang and it was our mother calling from a phone box. She'd had a baby boy called Daniel John Henry Holt, but we had to promise not to shorten it to DJ or Danny. He was Daniel. And they came home that night in the snowdrop van with Mr Holt. And that was the start of Danny, who after being so faintly drawn, burst into our lives in full colour, like the sun shining through expensive curtains. We all sat around that first evening, kissing his tiny hands and feeling the perfect little weight of him, and I realised that the world would go on and on forever. Everything was exactly the same. Mr Holt telling us to put our shoes on the rack, and our mother tutting, and yet everything had changed. This little baby who'd been deliberately got, but then regretted and slightly denied, who was the embodiment of irresponsibility, selfish actions, and the reneging on an agreement, and the, and the cause of so much sadness just by existing at all was held aloft and adored by everyone and chuckled at and dandled, and quite rightly so, as he was pure delight. His hair was black and wavy and his brown eyes were so kind. He was half puppy, half boy, <laughs> and he looked like Mowgli and Aladdin and Richard Burton all rolled into one, <laughs> only prettier. 
and he got nicer by the day. And all the people who had pronounced another baby ill-advised, all my mother's relatives, would see him in his pram or later in his stripy pushchair holding a little ribbon in his fist and sucking his thumb and they'd smile and feel happier than they had before. The only time I ever knew him disliked was by a Springer Spaniel called Turk and even he came to love him. Our mother had got away with it by having the nicest baby it was possible to have. There was no denying we were badly off though and having Danny had made things considerably harder and Mr. Holt, who was already very careful with money, tightened up further and put a lock on the garage where we kept the tinned foods and a lock on the phone that prevented us dialing. Can we actually afford this baby? asked Jack that first evening. Good question, said Mr. Holt. No, we can't, and we were stretched to the limit already. But he's worth it, though, our mother said worriedly, isn't he? And Mr. Holt lifted Danny into the air in front of him. He's all right, he said, but he was almost bursting with joy and had to get his hanky out. What's it like to have a baby? I asked my mother. I meant, how did it feel emotionally? It's like shitting a football, she said. <laughs> I meant emotionally, I said. Shitting a football, she repeated. I mean, it's interesting, the humour is often a, an accumulation of detail, isn't it? It's just not Mowgli and Aladdin and Richard Burton. Yeah. It's the idea that you, you start something off yeah. and then you just throw something yeah. else into the sentence. Is that yeah. how your humour... I mean, humour often works in threes. It's one and then another yeah, yeah, and then yeah. another. But it is about putting incredibly disparate things into the same sentence or same paragraph. Yeah, it is. And I think with... When I'm narrating for Lizzie... It is me then, and I do get really into her. And it's that kind of saying a thing that sounds quite clever. You know, he was like Aladdin or whatever she is. He was like Aladdin. And then go, oh, and that, and that. And sort of just, you know, rambling and gushing. And I let her, I let Lizzie do that a lot, as you've noticed. I mean, it's just a matter of sort of putting lots in it. If we were doing a very pretentious literary, literary festival, which is, this is not, I would call yeah. it Rabelaisian humour. Yes. You know, you would add, <laughs> but we're not talking like that, no. No, are we? No. no. Good. Okay, good. Sorry. Spare you that. If you were hoping for a discussion of Rabelaisian humour, there's one in two weeks' time. Um, anyway, the thing is, um, the 1970s, of course, what, what you've got mm. is got humour at quite a grim time. We're both, I'm sorry to say, roughly, very roughly, I am older than you, but we are roughly the He's same. He's a lot older than me. He <laughs> <tried>. <laughs> and... Uh, and the 70s, bloody hell. Yeah, awful. They were terrible. They were so, great. So, tell us about how you see that growing um, up in the 70s in Leicester. Leicester's now quite a groovy town because of the football club groovy. and Richard III. Yeah. But it probably wasn't that groovy in the 70s. It's, it, yeah, I, look, like, like everybody, I look back from now with absolute horror at what we were like and what, what the time was like, you know, the casual racism and the sexism and the awful time women had and homophobia and all the rest of it. It's awful. And, um, and, and we're obsessed a bit with it, aren't we? There are lots of, of programmes that we, we can look back at that time. On YouTube, you see those awful adverts and the way women were objectified and all that. And, and so it's awful. But at the time, I sort of already knew. You know, I, you just sort of thought, well, gosh, you know, it, it did feel pretty grim. Um, but there were wonderful things. And 
the fact that we weren't so self-conscious then meant that people were openly awful. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and so that's quite a gift to write about, I think. I mean, this is one of the things now we, everyone has a mobile phone and children and adolescents all have mobile phones, but th this idea of uh, Mr. Holt putting a lock on the telephone. But you yeah. remember when uh, Graham, phone calls were very expensive yeah. and people get in a terrible state about them. And so yeah. money and yeah. economy, and you Look, didn't have very much money. The phone money. bill was a huge, tyrannical yeah. thing then. Yeah. And people don't, I mean, my kids don't understand it. You know, who, does anyone else remember those little locks on the phone, on the one? Yeah. So you couldn't... And, you know, a lot of people had those. Or, or you had a special tariff where it was incoming calls only. If you were really, you know, terrible yeah. at paying your bill, you could, you could have that. Or you, put the, or you put the phone in a really cold part of the house yes. so nobody would be too yeah. long on the phone. Because you only had that long. Yes. <laughs> you, yeah, you know, yes. It, it was a different experience for teenagers then. A very, very different experience. We, we, we went off and did things and, and it was like horrible. Job, which is, you see where I'm going? I'm going to you oh, yeah, getting a yeah. job. Oh, yeah, that's where you're going. <laughs> <laughs> well, I thought we, we had prepared this, I know, really. we, like, we really <laughs> did prepare. I'm terrible. So, no, no. So, the idea is you have to get yes. a... You, so, even at 15, yeah, and yeah, you're yeah, a yeah. full-time schoolgirl, and lots of your friends yes, got jobs. Yes, we all so. did. We all had jobs. And mostly the jobs would be after school, a couple of days, or maybe at the weekend. And But if you really liked the job, you might just stay at the job and not go to school, and that's what I did. You know, I, I'd... School just seemed so pointless. You know, my mum had had this baby, because she in real life did have that baby I was just reading about. And, um, you know, she'd conned this bloke and had a baby, and it seemed the way to go. And what's the point of learning about, you know, what, weather maths? and maths and, you know, and when you're just going to have a baby? That, that's what I thought life was going to be. I was going to find a bloke, con him into having a couple of kids and make gravy. And so I, and so I'd got this job where I could afford, you know, really nice shampoo and all the things that my parents couldn't afford. My mum and her step, uh, my stepdad couldn't afford. You know, I could buy jam. You know, I could buy, you know, and I kept my own little pot of marmalade in my bedroom. <laughs> Roses, it was lovely. And you, and you used Linko beer shampoo. Yeah, oh yeah, I still do. I'm sure you can tell. <laughs> And yet when, in fact, this is part of the opening, another reading we're going to do. Oh, yeah. But uh, when, of course, Matron in the, uh, in the home buys her own version of Linko yeah. beer shampoo, you switch to Silvercrim. Yeah. Just to show her off. Yeah. Sort of revenge. Show well, revenge I, I, by Silvercrim. Yeah, I'd fallen out. I didn't like her anymore, and I didn't want to have the same shampoo as her. And so I pretended I'd gone on to Silvercrim for Greasy. But I hadn't. <laughs> Lemon and lime. <laughs> But we were enthralled to the adverts in those days, especially at, at 15. You know, you'd, someone would come on and wash their hair in a lovely creek with a ladle. Yeah. And you'd, wa you'd want to do, you'd want that thing, even if you had scraggy brown hair like mine. Now, who can forget Soap on a Rope? So I loved Soap on a Rope. Soap on a soap Rope, on yeah. A rope. Soap, Christmas was always such fun. You knew you were going to get Soap well, on a Rope. I got, I, exactly. And, you know, a my, I've had very lovely reviews for this book. I cannot complain, lovely reviews. But a couple have been a little bit snippy about my mentioning things. And I think, well, you can't write about the 70s and not mention things. Yeah. You know, I haven't got a Ford Cortina on every page, but I have got Soap on a Rope because ha you have to. And the kind of car you drive, I remember um, I tried to 
date. This is not about me, it's about Nina. I'm just telling you something very quickly. Um, uh, <laughs> I remember being, uh, trying to get off with Wendy, and she said, uh, but Mark's got a Cortina, and he's got yeah. tinted windows. Yeah, yeah, uh, exactly. Thought, yeah. How could I compete yeah. with that? Yeah, that's what I mean. We yeah. were less self-conscious. Yeah. Nowadays, a 17-year-old girl would know to say, you know, I prefer that you read this yeah. book to that book, you wouldn't say, I prefer his car, but you, in those days you would. Yeah, car He's got a Kawasaki, most... you've got a Yamaha. Yeah. You know. So, tell us about this, how you got to the Paradise Lodge. Do you want Nina to answer that? The phone? Um, <laughs> um, read, so read, 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 read it, how I you got the, the job in Paradise yeah. Lodge. Yeah. And this is all very autobiographical. Okay, this is, James chooses the readings, by the way, so if you hate them, it's his fault. I have to have it about there. So, um, yeah, chapter one, Linko Beer Shampoo. Uh, the job at Paradise Lodge was Miranda Longlady's idea. I happened to bump into her outside Poppin stores one day, and she pointed out a card on the notice board. Paradise Lodge, nursing home for the elderly. Non-unionised auxiliary nurses sought for part-time duties. 35p per hour. Ideal part-time position for outgoing, compassionate females of any age. Miranda wanted to apply and was hoping to talk her sister Melody into going with her. But when Melody came out of the shop with a loaf of take-and-bake and read the notice, she said, it was, she said it wasn't for her. She'd gone into a punk phase around then and had pierced her upper ear with a needle and an ice cube and had intellectual obscenities felt penned onto her T-shirt. Go on, Miranda whined. I don't want to go on my own. While they bickered, I read the card again closely and realised that I wanted the job. I was 15 and I loved the idea of being professionally compassionate. <laughs> I was longing for something that might blossom into a new phase that didn't involve horses or school or becoming a punk like Melody or having a full-time boyfriend, all of which seemed too exhausting to commit to. Plus, 35p per hour would work out at almost £3 a day, a huge amount then. You could practically live on it. Plus, it was walkable distance, and I was a hater of bus travel. I'll go with you, I said, and Miranda spun round and looked at me, gone out. We'd never been particularly friendly. Actually, I hated her, and, <laughs> and ditto she me. But for the reasons above, I ended up walking with her to the next village to apply in person forthwith as per the card. The walk up to Paradise Lodge was fascinating. Miranda opened up to me about her reason for needing the job. And it was so compelling and romantic, and unlike the Miranda of old, I changed my mind about her. I still didn't like her as such, but she seemed interesting, which was more than could be said for most people. Miranda and her mother were at loggerheads regarding her new boyfriend, Mike Yu. Miranda had gone on the pill, to be poised to have intercourse with him when the time came. And Mrs. Longlady had twigged it because of Miranda suddenly going up two bra sizes <laughs> in spite of a recent switch from real bread to low-calorie slimpsia. <laughs> Mrs. Longlady had stopped Miranda's pocket money and was now refusing to give her a penny until she stopped seeing Mike Yu. The real problem was that Mrs. Longlady preferred Miranda's ex, a boy from Market Harbour called Big Smig, who was posh but tried to play it down by swearing, and whose dad worked for British Leyland on the admin side, and whose mum did charity work for Princess Anne with a horsey connection and was single-handedly arranging five interconnecting street parties for this Queen's Silver Jubilee. 
Miranda's mother was offensive about Mike Yu, calling him Buttercup and saying he was Japanese. This infuriated Miranda because Mike wasn't. He was from Hong Kong and the people from there are usually British or Chinese unless they're another nationality, but they weren't usually Japanese for some reason. Miranda had researched the whole thing thoroughly with an encyclopedia and had even asked Mike Yu about it, even though that had been awkward and intrusive. Miranda had recently had a bad dream in which her mother had made a voodoo doll of Mike and stuck a pin in it. And while poor Mike Yu writhed in agony in the dream, Miranda had shouted at her mother, stop doing voodoo on Mike, I love him. And it was via that dream that Miranda was first aware she had actually fallen in love with Mike. Since then, Miranda's relationship with Mike Yu had become so serious, she'd been to dinner twice with the whole Yu family, Mike, his parents, and an old granddad. On the first occasion, they'd had food sent up to their flat from Good Luck House Takeaway, which they owned and was downstairs. And it had been very nice. The second time, though, it was disgusting. Mike Yu's mother had attempted to cook in the English style, in her honour. And though it was a kind gesture, Miranda had very nearly been sick at the table. Mike Yu's mother had served great big onions as if they were a vegetable, just cooked whole and plonked at the side of the plate next to a slab of pork. Miranda had struggled with the pork, chewy, salty, and the onion, slimy, sweet, and had literally gagged and had only just managed to cover it up with a pretend coughing fit. Plus, it hadn't helped that Mike Yu's old granddad had sat there with his plastic face and glued up eyes, eating hard-boiled eggs with his fingers. In spite of all this horror, Miranda was so keen on Mike, she tried to learn Chinese so they could chat in his language. It had come to nothing, though. Just learning Tuesday, Tinsiwa, had taken her a week, and then no sooner had she learned Wednesday, Tinsitia, that she forgot Tuesday. Miranda had expected it to be a doddle, her mother having become semi-bilingual English-Spanish within a matter of weeks when attending a night class. Miranda had thrown in the towel and just spoken in English and signs. She did learn Mike Yu's mother's name, Yu Anqing, which meant quiet, and his father's name, Yu Huqing, which meant good luck, but hadn't bothered with the old granddad because she didn't want to have to look at him. It's awful. Um, <laughs> she, but Miranda was awful. She thanked God for Mike having an English name, otherwise she might not have been able to go out with him. But he must have a Chinese name, I said. No, Miranda assured me. Mike's Mike in Chinese. Anyway, Miran Miranda needed the money to buy clothes and cosmetics to look trendy and attractive for Mike Yu, especially as she'd outgrown all her clothes with her new bigger bust she'd given away her Dorothy Perkins bras to her sister Melody, who wasn't on the pill and needed the padding and had gone a bit manly in puberty. My reasons for wanting the job at Paradise Lodge didn't seem anywhere near as exciting or romantic as Miranda's, nor as straightforward, which was just as well as there was no time. Her, her story had lasted the entire 40-minute walk. There, said Miranda, pointing, Paradise Lodge. I flicked my fag into the drain and we tiptoed over the cattle grid. Miranda, being in high shoes, was cautious and had to watch her footing. Looking down, I saw a walking stick lying in the oily water in the pit underneath. Jesus, said Miranda, wobbling a bit. There's no way the old cunts are escaping from here. <laughs> Thank you.
So I, I, want, I picked that reading because it's the beginning and it sets up the arrival to the home, but also the advantage or disadvantage or the problems of having a, an adolescent tone, a teenage tone, because it's naive and therefore mm. it can be, for you know, glued up eyes, it can be racist. Mm. And so yeah. how do you deal with that casual 70s racism, that, <clears throat> that sort of uh, ignorant and judgmental attitude? Well, do you think you get away with it because she's, she's young? I don't know. I, I hope so. I, I couldn't not have it in. Yeah. Um, because the casual racism was a really important feature of life then and it, it actually would be awful not to include it. Um, and um, I was talking to James earlier about this and I was saying that um, you, if somebody was foreign, you know, not English and white, you wouldn't mention it. It was almost as if it was a defect and you'd be, be, be rude. So the fact that one of the characters is going on and on about, you know, the Chineseness of this family, it, it, you know, it was, it, it was fascinating to me. I mean, Mike Yu's a made-up character. He's not real, but he's real enough. And, um, yeah, I, I had to include it. I hope I get away with it. Well, it's amazing because at the time, these comedies of sitcoms, all of us who are old enough to remember, you remember Mind Your Language? Yeah. Or Alf Garnet, or It Ain't Half Hot Mum. Or sort of love, like, love Thy Neighbour. Love Thy Neighbour. All these kind yeah. of weird series in which yeah, really foreigners were, were literally foreign. And actually, people before they met you thought you were foreign, didn't they? Yes. Because of your uh, name, Stibby. Nina Stibby was a very unusual name. And uh, quite often people would say, oh, we thought you were going to be a Pakistani. You know, yeah. if they just had a list with my name on it, they'd go, oh, oh, bloody hell. You know, and it was like... But it was, it was, it was the norm. And what you're doing is satirising attitudes at the time and satirising not just the um, uh, patients, but also the staff. So you're going in yeah. and there's this collision, isn't it, between adolescence and the elderly. This adolescence yeah. and, there's a, uh, and your friend goes too and there are other young nurses. Yeah. And so it's this kind of collision which... which so there's almost very little middle age apart from at home. It's the young and yeah. the very old. The young and the very old. And it was interesting because these old people, in 1977, very old people were Victorian. You know, they were they were from a different age, and um, many of the women, many of the patients in the nursing home, we called them patients then. You'd now call them residents, I guess. Um, were um, unmarried women, and they felt that they their lives had been, you know, a reduced version of what they should have been because they didn't marry. Many of them had never really worked. They'd sort of look, hung around for a husband for quite a while and then maybe helped in a school and then they'd looked after elderly relatives. And um, so they, they were wonderful, but they were very keen that we young girls had a, had a young man. And so you'd have the same conversation again and again. Have you got a young man? Have you got a young man? And in the end, you, even if you hadn't, you'd say, yes, yes, I have, and I'm engaged. Yes, it's okay. Uh, because this was their, their, their obsession, they, their, their lives had been rather thwarted. Yeah, and it was a, an onus on you then, from yeah. everyone to have uh, some kind of the status of a boyfriend. Yeah, very much, yeah. So when you're, when you're going, doing that, I mean, the, one of the most striking and more serious aspects of this book is the tasks you had to do as yeah. a 15-year-old, yeah. which is quite extraordinary. It's yeah. not only just caring for elderly people, but it's actually dealing, well, just frankly, is dealing with death. Yeah, dealing with death. And, and tell, deal tell us about, tell us deal about what well, you kind of things um, you had to do. The, the home uh, had 
uh, the sort of Mrs. Palfrey's, you know, older women that uh, sort of lived in, in the home as a hotel almost, and it was somewhere to go when they didn't want to live alone anymore. Um, but then there were patients who were very, very ill and needed palliative care, although I'm not sure we called it that then. Um, so there were, the, there were the, the, the sort of able, sprightly, lovely people living their ordinary lives and going off to church on a Sunday and going down to the village. But then there were, there were people in bed on a ripple mattress dying. And, and, they, and they did die. And, um, and you were 15? And I was 15, and lots of us were. And um, they didn't have any family to be with them when they were very, very ill. And so we were with them. And, I, you know, I remember once... Uh, rambling on to a dying woman because my mum had said to me you've got, you've got to realise that, that you know they might not be able to speak and they might seem unconscious but she said something like the hearing's the last thing to go or something like that and it really stuck with me and I remember chatting away to this poor woman about Gordon Banks and how he'd gone to America but he was you know, had been the best goalkeeper Leicester had had and we'd now got Peter Shilton or, you know that type yeah. of thing and this woman sort of lying there going <gasps> You know, and it's just, you know, when you look back, bizarre, but it wasn't disturbing. It just seemed very ordinary. It was just part of the day. And, and Lizzie Vogel is actually a girl, a uh, young woman, who is trying her best. Yes. She's generally, there's a sort of yeah. moral purpose to your fiction. Yeah. She is trying her best to make things better. She's trying to yeah. fix things. But like in all good comedy, there are things blocking her. There's, she's and prevented she does, from doing what she wants to and do. And she does, I mean, in the, in the previous book and this book, she does tend to... She's trying her best, she's well-intentioned, but actually she does make an awful lot of trouble, and not necessarily in a comedy way. You know, she j everything she does, well, not everything, but everything that happens is because, or not, or because she has or hasn't done something, if you see what I mean. So there, are two, there are two plot, major plot narratives, just so you know. One is that a rival home uh, um, sets itself up and uh, Paradise Lodge has to up its game and Lizzie becomes partly responsible for this and also that Lizzie's mother and Mr Holt decide to get married. And unfortunately, these events... So the Paradise Lodge organises an open day which is organised on the same day as, as, as Lizzie's mother's, Lizzie's mother's wedding. wedding. So it's a wedding and an open day on the same day clash. And the novel moves towards this great, yeah. this, this great clash of is she a daughter or is she an employee? Yeah. Uh, did, that didn't happen, presumably. No, they didn't get married um, on the day of the opening day, but they did get married around that same time. And there was a lot of sort of overlap of can we borrow your bunting type thing, <laughs> which was much harder to write. But yeah, I mean, it's a very, it, it's, it's, very autobiographical, but you know there are odd things that I've tweaked just to make it neater. Um, uh, yes, and there's, th I've, I've got a bad foot at the moment. Why am I telling you this? Because I was reading this with my foot up and actually fell off the sofa at the description of the open day with the Barry Sheen motorbike demo moment. <laughs> so and uh, it's a wonderful moments of sort of slapstick in the novel. And uh, you talk about, we didn't call it then. We had other words for things then. And there were great sort of euphemisms. Yeah. And there's a whole section, there's a little section in this book about euphemisms, oh, about yeah. uh, uh, not calling things by their proper name because things proper names like death and toilet are scary so uh, we call things by other names and I'd like you to I just wondered yeah, if you could read will, this read that bit. this passage about it's, it's uh, funny about the euphemisms because so it's a nursing home and it's full of people who need looking after and physically looking after and uh, the first thing that you're told uh, when you go to work there is that you're not to mention the word toilet and it's very difficult because 
the job was very much getting people to the toilet and sort of helping them once they're on the toilet and that kind of thing. And um, so you, you went to mention toilets and um, definitely weren't allowed to swear at all or say God. Sorry. No, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um. um, so, and it was, it was just bizarre that we weren't to say toilet or bottom or um, anything like that. And we, I think we were allowed to say feet and that was about it. <laughs> but then after I'd worked there a little while, a, nur- a, a, a manager, a senior nurse arrives who's going to manage this um, rehabilitation of the home. And uh, in real life, in the book, she's, she's uh, sort of vaguely African, but I, I didn't, hadn't met the real woman and I hadn't got her approval to write her. But in real life, she was from Malaysia, as she called it. And um, she was completely flummoxed by the euphemisms. As you know, you can imagine. She's a medical woman, and she'd say, what's wrong with this woman? Blah, and we'd say, oh, she's, you know, got a sore, you know. Anyway, so it was really difficult, and she absolutely went crazy one day and put her foot down and said, I no more euphemisms or what, you know, no more talking like that. So that's the bit I'm going to read now. But it's ludicrous, said Sister Salim, and confusing and unprofessional. And she told us of the wasted half an hour she'd had trying to help Miss Boyd find her bank book because she was complaining of a problem with her halfpenny. <laughs> this isn't even modern coinage, she said and laughed, although she didn't seem to find it funny overall. And it was the nearest I came to a proper argument with her. That evening, I made her a euphemism translation card to make up for the row in nice writing with tasteful but honest illustrations. It wasn't as easy as it sounds because some things I thought were proper terms were euphemisms and sometimes it was hard to find the real term. So this is the list that Lizzie makes and similar to the list that I actually made. Comfort station, toilet, powder room, Toilets, cloakroom, toilets, lavvy, toilet, WC, toilet, powder my nose, go to the toilet, spend a penny, urinate, tinkle, urinate, wee wee, urinate. Number two, open bowel. Do business, open bowel. Pass away, die. Pass on, die. Gone, died. Fallen asleep, died. Taken, died. Hapney, vagina. Tuppence, vagina. Twinkle, vagina. Downstairs, vagina. Sweetie, vagina. Place. <laughs> Soldier <laughs> Penis <laughs> So how Yeah thanks we, I think we've finished reading yeah, I think we, Who knows We could do anything I think it's time for you To ask some questions We can always go back and talk But surely it's uh, it's, it's your turn now And we have a roving mic But you're probably busy With the thing uh, I'm going to go right to left I think um, Anybody over here With a question for Nina um, Don't be shy Otherwise Can I just we'll say About the euphemisms Yes you speak um, The 
Paradise Lodge has just come out in the, the United States. <laughs> and it's been hilarious because <laughs> they want to do me to do a piece on euphemisms, but then they don't really understand. <laughs> and, you know, anyway. Questions? Any, any questions? Uh, over, yes, the, the gentleman there. Thank you very much. Uh, hi, Nina. Can hi. you tell us what it was like working with Nick Hornby on the screenplay? Oh, it yes, was this wonderful. Is a screenplay, this is a screenplay of ne uh, Love, Nina, which... Uh, you, you let Nick Hornby write a screenplay. Yeah, for. I let him. <laughs> so what was it like? Answer the question. It, right, yes. <laughs> no. um, yes, I, I very kindly allowed Nick to do that. Um, it was uh, marvellous and tremendous, and it was thrilling because when um, very soon after that book was published, uh, Nick got involved and said he liked it and he wanted to, to work on it. So it happened very quickly, um, and... Um, my publisher rang up and said, look, Nick Hornby wants to write a screenplay and the BBC, blah, blah, and all that. And I was extremely excited and a bit kind of, you know, oh God, is this real? Uh, and I quickly phoned a friend and, and said, look, this thing's happened. And he said, look, just forget it. It's not going to happen. These things happens all the time with every book. You, people like Nick Hornby say they're going to write it and the BBC are going to do it, but it will all just come to nothing. So I then completely put it out of my mind until um, the next call was, you know, probably a year later saying, oh, we've cast Helena Bonham Carter type thing, you know. So it, so it was wonderful for me because I didn't get excited and I really, it was a lovely thing to hear and then, oh no, nothing. And then it really did happen. And actually, in terms of working with him as a person, he's extraordinary, he's lovely, he's kind of weirdly ordinary and nice and decent and just very clever and funny. So it was thrilling and wonderful. You mean writers aren't ordin or normally weirdly ordinary? <laughs> well, they're not, are they? No, no, we're all mad. Um, uh, anybody here, here, here? Oh, we go, oh, yes, we'll go right over here then. Um, I, I while we're waiting, is it hard to write about adolescence now that you're so ancient? No, it's, no, I, honestly, I couldn't write about me now because I don't know what I think. But then, I mean, I, I often say about this character that, you know, I think I peaked intellectually about 9, 10. <laughs> and and I, I remember so clearly, I mean, don't, don't you all remember that it's so real and yeah. it's so easy to write about it. Um, so, well, let's have the question. I'm interested, um, James has already expressed a little concern. Um, most of us of your vintage, I think we're probably about the same age, had jobs. I started a Saturday job when I was 13. Um, I've just had my neighbour delivering her son's paper round all through the summer because she didn't want to wake him up. Have you had, oh, <laughs> have you had a lot of consternation, brilliant. James yeah. has already done it, about yeah. a 15-year-old working in a care home, which to me, you think, well, that's fine, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I've, it's, it's, yes, I, I agree. And in fact, the pool, I think it was the pool, you know, the online news magazine, did a thing where they got people to write about the, their experiences of working part-time as teenagers and what, and what they feel it did for them and whether they regret that their teenage... My, my teenage daughter's here somewhere and she just got, got a job and we were like, oh, no, her studies... Yeah. How can she do this job? And, and you know, she, it was in a fabric shop in Truro. How can she measure fabric and, and, and learn about maths? And, you know, I think we're, we're very overprotective and worried about them. And I hear this all the time, that the, the, the people are doing their children's jobs for them. 
Yeah, so I'm, yeah, I, I think it was a good thing back then, and maybe not perhaps as extreme as some of us went, but I'm, I'm all for my kids working. It Did you a have a job? Did you have a job? Yeah. I mean, we, we were very... Yeah. I mean, it, yes, of course. Yeah. Well, well yes, well, well. my sister worked in Woolies. There you yeah. are. Well, it, it, do you, did you feel neglected as a child? No. Yeah, yeah because, I, I mean, there wasn't a way to no get out. But you were supposed no to get out of parents, the house. They had no you? interest in me. And it was, it was benign neglect. You know, it was... But you had to get out of the house. It's like at, at university, when you send your children to university. I mean, we couldn't wait to get out, but now when they come back from university, they expect a double bed and a room for them and their partner and yeah. breakfast in bed. And you think, yeah. what? Yeah. What is this? I never yeah. had this. Yeah. I had to go and sleep in a bed yeah. sit with Mary Cooch in Kentish Town and the rats were out. Yeah. Yes. Just in order to have sex. It was terrible. Yeah. Um, right. Uh, anybody over? Yes, there's, a, there's somebody there. I'm sorry. It's awful, isn't it? Why we, we, are, we were going to talk a little bit about adolescent sex, but we decided not to. So it, it, but we may come back James to it. James was desperate to talk about sex. <laughs> Yes. Uh, you, you mentioned um, the impact of sort of the autobiographical element of your book on other people, other characters. I wonder if you could talk a bit more about that, about the impact and how you managed it. Oh, managing writing about real people. Yeah, so having other people. Involved. Yeah. Um, well, with the first book, it was um, I knew I had to let my mum uh, read it before I gave it to the publisher, and uh, there were probably let's say 20 things I thought were moments of, that she might object to and say, you know, do I have to really have two abortions in this book? Could I, you know, that, I thought she might, but it, it, the things she didn't, the things she didn't like were really odd. You know, she didn't like that she'd uh, burnt some onions. Um, she was making a risotto, and in real life, I mean, it obviously meant an awful lot to her, because in real life, what happened was she burned these onions, and I was too scared to say the onions were burning, because I thought she might go, shut up, because she was a neurotic cook. And I was like, oh, God, the onions, are they burning? Oh, no. And eventually I did, and she was cross that I'd said they were burning. And, but she minded about that, and I, and I was just, and I had to say, but mum, what about page 200 where you send us to London to go and get some drugs for you? And she went, oh, well, you know, I think everybody did that. <laughs> you know, she was like, okay, fine. And, um, and, I, and I heard uh, Colm Tabeen on Desert Island Discs talking about this very thing, saying, you really mustn't mind. You, you just have to go for it. And he talked about how his mother had minded nothing except that he described her every mealtime collecting all the cutlery from the cutlery drawer and just plonking it in the middle of the table instead of doing knife, fork, knife, fork, knife, fork. And she, she was mortified by this, but nothing else. And, and, I, and, and it was funny that my mum had done the same. And also in this book, I described the birth of my much younger brother, who in real life is called Johnny. And I said, look, you know, I'm going to reveal to the whole world and all the millions of people that are gonna read this book uh, that you were unwanted and you were basically, my mum had conned dad into having you. Do you mind? He went, oh, well, I knew that because there's a dent in the wall where he threw an ashtray. Um, so, okay. And he went, but did you have to call me Danny? <laughs> and I think Danny's a fantastic name. So, he, so uh, you manage it and it's never what you think that, that's, that worries them. It's hilarious. Okay. And uh, anybody... This part, oh, this, where, where question are we? here. Oh yes, we we'll go over here. Sorry, it's a bit of a run. 
Um, is there anything you get, is there anything, did you, while you're waiting, did you do any self-censorship? Yeah, there's, there's a couple of things I didn't. I've, about I, you or about other people? Well, yeah, it's interesting. I, in real life, in that time span, I had a boyfriend that was much closer to me than I've, yeah. In the book, I've said I had a boyfriend, didn't work out, and, but he was very clingy, and in the end, I thought I might have to have him killed. <laughs> and that was true. I did think, you know, how the hell am I going to, you know, how do you get rid of them? And I, and I remember thinking, perhaps, he, you know, I think I'd seen a film where someone had taken a hit out on someone. I thought, could you really do that? That might, it would be really good because his parents aren't that bothered. And, you know, I really thought that. But um, so I was actually in a closer relationship. Lizzie is much more alone than I was. I was much more successful in terms of love than Lizzie. It, it would have been very cheap, actually, and you had a job. It's quite cheap to, you know, apparently, hit, yeah. hit people in Leicester. Yeah, quite oh, cheap. yeah, in those yeah. days. Very, very yeah, cheap, easily yeah. just run them over. <laughs> Sorry. Thank you very much for your entertainment of the 70s. You just brought a flood of memories right back to me, but I'm just wondering, your euphemisms, have they stayed with you? Do you still use them now? Do I now? still use them? Because I find I still use them. Well, I stopped using them because of this. And because I had a mum that, was, that, was, that hated euphemisms and she'd deliberately say, it was awful, I'm, I'm going to be really rude now, but she'd say, what's the matter, do you need a shit? Because as a way of being anti, as being, you know, rebellious. So I didn't... But then I had kids and lived in Cornwall and realised very quickly I had to change my language. And I did, and I didn't do it very well. And I, so I started to say, instead of just not saying fuck, I'd say, oh, fudge, <laughs> you know, that, and, and, and elaborate things that were obviously the thing. And then um, instead of just saying, oh, you know, yikes, I'd get the nearest I could to it, so I'd have two children that would go around saying, sugar, fudge, <laughs> I think it's ridiculous. And then one day my son said to me, what was the worst word? You know, he really, he really wanted to know, what is the worst word? And uh, I, I couldn't think, and we were on a little bike ride in the lanes in Cornwall, and there was a parked car, and in the back it had the name of the car dealership, which was Dale's, Dale's Secondhand Cars. So I just said, Dale. And he went, oh my gosh. I went, what? And he went, poor Sheila. And it's because his piano teacher was called Sheila Dale. So I basically told my son that his piano teacher was called Sheila Hunt, you know. As a gentleman Thank out you. here. Uh, I'm faintly embarrassed to say that I didn't discover Catcher in the Rye until post-adolescence, it would be in my 20s, but one that I, I did read in the adolescence, and I recognise his voice occasionally in some of your writing, and I'm curious to what extent you may have been influenced by the likes of Keith Waterhouse, that I seem to recognise Billy Fisher's voice every oh, so often. God. Oh, that's quite... I'm pleased that you've said that. Yes, uh, Billy Liar. Yes, yeah. yes. Yeah. I mean, even the shape of Lizzie Vogel, Billy yeah. Fisher. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, th funnily enough, I didn't read Billy Liar until later, but there was a... I'd seen it. Was there a television? Yes, Jeff Mr. Roll. Shadrach. Yes, Leonard yes. Rossiter. Yeah. Yes. So I'd seen it, and 
Look, I can't say who it was, but I had a very close, fr let's say, friend who was a Billy Liar. I'm not yeah. going to say who it was. Don't let me say who it is. <laughs> yes. Normally when I do this, I say, oh, and so I said, Jane. You know, anyway, I had this person in my life that I was with a lot who did that, would constantly get him slash herself into these awful pickles, uh, telling these awful lies. And I remember once being, can I say this? Yeah, yeah on yeah. holiday and somebody coming up to me and saying, lucky you, and I said, oh, what? And they said, living on a horse stud farm. <laughs> and I went, oh, right, and I knew, him, I knew who'd said it. And I couldn't say, oh, we don't live on a horse stud farm. We live in a, you know, semi in Fleckney in Leicestershire. But, um, so it's interesting that you say that, and I talk in this book, have you read Paradise Lodge? I've started it. Yeah, well, in this, I talk about lying, about the fact that we did lie more. And I'm sort of slightly mentioning this person that shall, shall not be named. Uh, that, you know, that we lied pointlessly a bit and sort of self-aggrandizingly. And, uh, you know, that... But I'm, I'm quite pleased that you've said this because I'd, I'm, I'm glad, I'm happy with the comparison. I'm not a plant. That was entirely yeah. prompted by myself. <laughs> Any it's other questions? Is that, are you adjusting your hair, madam? Or are you, you are adjusting your hair. Good. Um, um, do you... Um, Oh, there's one. There's one. There's a man here, and I'm going to. Uh, I no, love it's the a lovely lady. It's I a lovely. Love the it's a lovely lady up there. The way. I'm going to ask you one welcome. Do you do you feel while we're waiting? Do you feel the need and urge to be funny? Is it is it something? I sometimes I no. feel it's a sort of eager to please. You think uh, if somebody asks me something, I'll try and be funny because it might please them. No, but you are very funny anyway. No, but, yeah, but are you, you are just doing that to please me? No, 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 no. I'm I'm, I'm supposed to be interviewing you. All that time, you. the lovely jokey time we've just had. Yeah, I'm just doing it to it's please. It's all you. deliberate. No. No, no. What do, you I feel, no do you feel an urge to make an anecdote or a moment in time funny? Not really. What happens to me now is that people think I'm funny, even when I'm not. I'll say something quite serious, like, I need to change my shoes. And they go, <laughs> so I get that a little bit. And also, I think since the Nick Hornby telly thing, people want to meet me because they sort of associate me with the wonderful things and you know, the Mary Kay and Sam and Will, who are wonderful and funny and accomplished. So that I'm, I get all that sort of reflected glory and all the Alan Bennett stuff. So people say, you know, I want to meet, I'm in London, I want to meet Nina. And I don't go to the meeting because I think they're just going to be horrified. Because, you know, I haven't got anything to say. But you do. So, no, yeah. no, no, I don't. And I'm, you know, I'm just uh, this person that lives in Truro. And, you know, I, so I, I have that and I worry that I'm not funny enough. Blimey. Uh, no, you are funny. I, I was going to think the opposite, actually. I was going to think, How I am coming am I to you, but I was going to think, um, I was going to think, um, do you get annoyed? Sometimes it happens to me, people think, oh, he's going to be funny, and, he's very, and he writes these cosy, primed kind of things. And therefore, I get annoyed I don't take, get taken seriously. Do you sometimes oh. get, want to be taken more? They think, no. oh, Nina, she's a bit daffy. What I want... Does that annoy no, you? I, I, no, I, I, not, really? yet. not yet. But, but it's it all very do. new for me at the moment. So at the moment, I'm quite happy for people to say that I'm the... The funniest living writer, although it's terrifying because yeah, I know I'm absolutely not. But when they go, funniest writer in Britain, question mark, I'm like, it. I've got to be funny. But what I have is, um, what am I going to say? Oh, there was something. Oh, I think, how can I ever win the Booker Prize? <laughs> no, you're not going to. No. I don't no. think that. No, I you're not going to do shit, that. Shit, no. have I gone down this funny route? Yeah, no, you're fucked. I'm going to have to write something really weird, like, you know, in a funny new language or, you know, narrated by a sausage. 
Well, some of <laughs> I can't. I can't keep being funny. No, you can only how Jason can do that. And yeah, no, he did it. He did it. He yeah. got away with it. Yeah, but generally, funny. If you're funny, oh, you're fucked. I can't be as funny as him. Um, well, I can't be funny clever. You can't, can't be, be funny clever. I can only can be, be quite funny. No, you can be funny clever. But you, yeah, you'll have to do. You'll have to do something. You'll have to write some really. You're gonna really have to help me. Well, can I'll you try. help me? Uh, yes. Or set it in really in the past. The other way to win the Booker Prize is to do an enormous amount of research. So you know, so, so, so I can't just you rely can't, on the no. You can't the do the Tudors. You can't do the Tudors because that's been done. No. But you could do something 13th century or yeah. do Richard the Third. Okay, yeah, yeah the Leicester. Leicester really the got Leicester, a yes. Richard the Third, Leicester. Sorry, there is a question up here. Sorry, there. Sorry, yes. Um, I really, I really enjoyed your the series Love Nina. It was absolutely fantastic. Thank you. And the two things I wanted to know was. Um, it is autobiographical, I'm sure, is it? Is yes. that right? Yes, it is. Yes, every bit of it. And the two little boys. And yeah, yes, yes, yes. And also the casting of um, Nina. Yes. I can't remember the actress's name. Faye Marseille. I thought she, I mean, now having seen you, I think she was absolutely perfect. Yeah, she and was. did you think that too? Yes, I did. Yeah. Um, um, my family um, came to the screening of the whole series. They showed all six or five or whatever it was um, in a hotel in London, and they couldn't believe it. Uh, this this girl, this woman, Faye Marseille. But I want to say this other thing that's sort of relating to your question, which which is the most thrilling thing for me, which is there's a character in uh, Love Nina, the television series, called Ray, who my now partner, then boyfriend, Nunny, was the helper for, and he was in a wheelchair. So anybody that watched the series, that, that actor in the wheelchair was, is, Sam Frears, who was the boy, one of the boys I looked after, was the boy with disabilities that I looked after. So he is now 42 or something, and uh, is an actor, and auditioned for the part, and got it so it's really exciting so he you know and it was great you know i felt that you know selfishly self-obsessed i was like i've given him this wonderful gift but not at all he did actually you know he had to audition and go through all the all the the, the hard work but he was brilliant and it was it was just thrilling but what a cast it was amazing fantastic cast mm. we've got time for one last question if anyone's got anything or i'll ask something um Okay, so um, what, what would you like to do next, Nina? Um, I'm currently writing the third of the Lizzie Great. Vogels. Uh, that's the uh, third in the trilogy. And uh, we've moved out of the 70s into the early 80s. And it's, it's the years between... Because they're so autobiographical, I, I catch up with myself moving to London and becoming a nanny and knowing Alan Bennett and his rice pudding. So it's the last little slice of, of my life uh, when um, I learned to drive and went off and uh, became a dental nurse and did all sorts of mischief. And so what surprised what you most about writing these? What have you learned most about yourself? Um, that I think the biggest lesson is really not just for me but for everybody that you should at least try to write in your own voice because I've been writing for 30 years and desperately trying to tell stories and I've done it this way and that way and I've uh, you know written in different narrations you know you know third person and first person and I've 
I've never before, before Love Nina, I'd never just relaxed and written as me. And of course, Love Nina, I didn't know anybody was going to read it because it was just letters written to my sister 30 years ago. But because people liked it, I went back to an old book I'd written, which was Man at the Helm, and I rewrote it in my voice. And, and my publisher liked it, and it was the first thing anyone had liked. And that's the lesson for me, that don't, just don't try too hard, I think. Yeah, don't write to impress. No, just Don't write. try and win the Booker Prize. Well, write. I'm going to do that next. <laughs> I'm going to try. But write to entertain. Yeah, write it? to entertain. Write to entertain and write what you're really feeling. And, you know, there are things that I... that you, that you might not think are funny and worthwhile, but actually they are, you know. And if they happen to you and they've meant something and it, it happened, it... It, it's worth something. I mean, the horse going upstairs and, you know, going crazy and looking out of the window, to me, that's just a, just a nothing thing that happened to me. But people just don't stop talking about it. And going barefoot, which I did in London for a bit, people just don't... Because people are interested. That's another lesson. People are interested. They love reading. They love stories. And they will love your story. And that's been... A, 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 a wonderful surprise. You know, I was 50 when I had my first book published, so it's, that's a lovely thing, isn't it? Yeah, and we, we love your stories, obviously. Thank and you. it's harder, it's often harder to write comedy than it is to write seriously. It's harder to structure a paragraph and structure a, a page or a chapter comically that then cuts into tragedy. Mm -hmm. Anyway, um, well, we know she's wonderful. Um, Nina will be signing copies of uh, Paradise Lodge and others in the, in, in the bookshop next door uh, right now. Um, I've had a very... God, I did such a serious thing this morning. This has just been a holiday. Um, thank you so much for coming. But please, yes, most of all, all, thank Nina coming. I love it that you all come. Thank you. Thank you. More podcasts and videos of Edinburgh International Book Festival events are available at www.edbookfest.co.uk on iTunes and YouTube. Just search for Edbookfest.